sleep. Oh my God, all things sleep. Do you know how important sleep is to your overall health, to losing weight, to your thyroid function, to your hormone balance, to your insulin resistance, to your heart, to your brain? If you don't start with sleep, and I am telling all of my listeners this and specifically my patients that we're working together, if you don't start with sleep, nothing will get better, nothing. It doesn't matter how many supplements, medications, hormone therapies, it doesn't matter how much we throw at you. If you are not sleeping, if you are not getting proper sleep, adequate sleep, the right amount, the right hours, if your circadian rhythm is off, nothing will get better. So that's why I'm super excited about my guest today, Molly Eastman, because she is going to rock your world in the area of sleep. She's the creator of Sleep is a Skill, and she's the host of the Sleep is a Skill podcast, which you should probably dive into because it's going to go much deeper than this episode. Listen to this episode first, and then you can binge her podcast, especially if you resonate with what we talk about today. So Sleep is a Skill is a company that optimizes people's sleep through a unique blend of technology, accountability, and behavioral change. After navigating insomnia while traveling internationally, she created what she couldn't find, a place to go to learn the skill of sleep. So I want you to dive into this episode and please implement. Implement the things that we talk about change your sleep habits, make sleep a priority. And if you need a little bit of extra help, then check out all the good stuff that Molly offers. Are you finally at your wits end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. Molly Eastman, thank you so much for joining me. I, like we talked about off camera, off air, our paths have just, I, I, they've crossed, but we have not even sat down to have a great conversation. So I'm super excited to have you on. Oh, I'm so excited to be on. And yes, as we were discussing so much, you know, kind of crossover and like-minded approaches to some of these things, just swimming in similar conversations. So this is going to be really great. Thank you so much. No doubt. So, all right, girl. I, I mean, I talk about sleep all the time on here, but not, I don't claim to be an expert. I don't play one on TV, nothing like that, but yeah. I know it's important. So I, I, we have to start with your story of how did you get into this realm and start really honing in on and specializing in the circadian rhythm and the importance of sleep and all the things that you do. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I hope that my story can uh, serve in this conversation to the listener from a perspective of wherever the person that is listening right now is in their journey with their sleep. I am confident that there is always something we can do to up-level where they're at with their sleep, even for those that say, I'm sleeping great, I'm good. The minute my head hits the pillow, I fall right asleep, which actually can often be a red flag for us that something might actually very well be going on with our sleep. So wherever you are with your sleep, hopefully this story can underscore that there's always things we can do. And my story is one where I really think of my life at this point in a three-part series. And what that looks like is how my life, how I related to my sleep before I had my own personal rock bottom in my life, which really looked like the combination of not being able to sleep for extended stretches of time, really feeling like I am losing my mind. I cannot go on like this. But until before it got there, what it looked like was a series of labels and narratives around how I'm thinking of my sleep. And I would say things like, I'm a short sleeper. I'm a night owl. It's in my genes. I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, all of these ways of relating to my sleep as if it was just a fixed way of being, not much to do about it, just more about survival, making it through. And that's how I acted and related to this area. For when this was as young as I can remember as a child, you know, the last person to fall asleep at the sleepovers and, you know, just got more pronounced into teenage years than college and post-college. Now I did not correlate all of these symptoms or signs that how I was managing my life was not working, particularly as it related to my sleep, getting more and more anxious as the years would go on, beginnings of an ulcer, shingles in my 20s, you know, a lot of signs that things are probably not working with how I'm managing things and not at all connecting the sleep component. As my tendencies and habits got more pronounced, I would be going to bed as the sun is rising in some of the worst case scenarios and then being justified and righteous the whole time. And I would say, well, I'll just sleep in later. I'm a serial entrepreneur in Manhattan, burning the candle at both ends. I make my own hours. So what's the big deal? This is not a problem. You know, next topic. And I kept doing that, kept doing that. And then as the stress of being an entrepreneur in Manhattan mounted and mounted, then I experienced this period of insomnia that completely, you know, no pun intended, uh, woke me up and shook me to my core because I can now look at it fondly. It is actually being one of the best things that happened to me now in retrospect. But at the time, I absolutely thought I'm losing my mind. I had a lot of fear and panic, really, that this was always going to be like this. I had come from a family of a lot of heavy kind of pharmaceutical dependencies and mental health issues. And so for me, when I went through this stretch of period of not being able to sleep and that extreme tired but wired sense, having when it got to some of its worst, the sun would be setting and my heart would start racing with, I can't, you know, greet another night like this, staring up to the ceiling, just you know, trying to force sleep to come. So it went like that. And I went to the doctors and left with sleeping pills. And in that moment, really realized, all right, I've got to get up under this. And it had, uh, the, the fire was within me to do this because I'd seen so many people go down that path of pharmaceuticals and really, you know, have a particular life in that, in that journey. So for me, it the stakes were high. 
And I ended up then spending a lot of time, energy, money, you know, all the things to, to handle this problem. Now, what I discovered changed my life. So what I discovered was this conversation of chronobiology, the science of time and how time affects our biology, particularly mm -hmm. circadian rhythm entrainment and how we can entrain and strengthen our own circadian rhythm by virtue of how we're managing and organizing our life. And so once this started happening, once my sleep starts restoring and not only getting back to how it was, but even better quantifiably to a level that I didn't even think was possible for me, I could not stop talking about it. And then these small groups start emerging really organically. And then what ends up getting created is what is now our company sleep is a skill. And so since then we created online courses, cohorts, we have the number two sleep podcast. We have weekly newsletters. I've been going out every Monday for five years. Just this whole world got created out of what truly was one of the lowest moments in my life, particular niche in high stakes poker. So we work with a lot of high stakes poker players. And I mentioned them because often they are in environments that are designed to be the most extreme form of, you know, kind of circadian missing or, you know, a lack of awareness of what anything of what's going on outside, which I'll get to is why I, I find actually a lot of parallels with that sort of environment. And sadly, how many of us are living in our indoor zoo-like environments. And we have amassed one of the largest databases of Oura Ring users from a sleep optimization perspective because we require everyone to wear aura rings. So we've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of data around people's sleep. And then some of the things on a very granular level, you know, this is outside of research, but from a behavioral change perspective that can help support changing and modifying their results. So I say all that, not to just say all that, but instead to point to wherever someone might be at with their sleep, that we can do far more than I think we might often realize, certainly more than I realized at the time, that we can absolutely change the relationship to our sleep, no matter where we're at. Wow. Okay. You said a lot right there. All right. First of all, I have to, I have to share with you that I totally jive with your story because very similarly, and, and, and I don't know, I mean, I think I have an answer now. I'm not really even sure. Maybe I'll, sure. I'll work with you here on this, but, but if we go back, oh my gosh, in my, in my thirties, same thing. I had horrible insomnia, went to the sleep specialist, did the whole sleep study. You know, I even did the thing where she's like, you know, you just, if, if you're not tired, you don't go to bed. Okay. Well, that meant three nights of just not sleeping at all. I'm like, this doesn't seem very healthy at all. So yeah. I went down the rabbit hole of the sleeping meds. And yeah. I mean, I, I'm self-admitted addict of Xanax to sleep. Now I didn't yeah. need it during the day. And I stayed on the same dose. And all of, of course, my allopathic doctor said, well, as long as you don't have to go up, you're fine. But here's my mom. She passed of Alzheimer's. I'm seeing all these studies of Xanax related to increased risk of Alzheimer's. I'm like, I got to get off this shit. Like, this is not good at all. So I had my own sleep journey, which now, I mean, maybe we'll go over this at some point in the, in this yeah. talk, but now I feel pretty secure. I feel like I'm doing the right things, but yeah. I'm not quite sure. So super interesting story on your, on your end. And, and the whole thing of everybody's been to Vegas or a casino. They can all relate to what you're saying about the poker players. You, in, yeah. in my entire life, and even when I was in college, I never stayed up all night except when I was in Vegas because my body yes. didn't even know it was nighttime. No clue. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yes, 
And one, thank you so much for sharing the piece about Xanax. I am particularly passionate on that topic of benzos and Z drugs and my concern around long-term use of these drugs for sleep specifically. And, and in general is a bigger topic, but when we talk about sleep, this is a big deal for me. I, I, out of respect for this family member, I don't share about their story in particular. They're still navigating some of this right now, but a very close family member, I have seen their entire lives transform out of long-term benzodiazepine use, specifically Xanax, high dose, tried to get off of it in ways that you're really, you know, ideally not supposed to, seizures, nearly died, psychosis, all these things. And sadly, it's not as if that's totally out of the realms of reality when we see long-term benzodiazepine use. Now, if anyone is listening on things like that, on Xanax, Klonopin, or in the Z-drug domain and the Ambien's and other things, we did have the Benzo uh, Information Coalition on the podcast. Now, they're a whole nonprofit devoted to this topic to try to really sound the alarm on what they're calling to be really the next opioid crisis, this kind of silent epidemic that's happening, specifically around that long-term use, because it's more approved for that short-term use. But sadly, many of us find ourselves, I don't know what happened, and now I've been on these things for years mm -hmm. and need to like up dosage and what have you. And so there are those resources where you can be paired with more of what they're calling kind of benzo literate or Z drug literate doctors that can help support you and understanding where you're at and then kind of come up with a plan so that we're not seeing those long-term effects. And like you said, with your mom, the um, dimension, some of those concerns of what could these be doing on a, over the long-term. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So we'll, we'll kind of dive into what I ended up doing. You can tell me right or wrong, but I want to know, let's, let's get into the importance of sleep. And I joke about this on the podcast a lot because it's like, I don't even want to, I want to just cover my ears and I don't want to know about what bad sleep can do because then it'll get in my head, but, but we have to face it. Right. I mean, I've, yeah. I've been a bad sleeper or just told you my story. We know that not sleeping has detrimental effects on the body and especially my audience struggling with thyroid problems, struggling with weight, yeah. struggling with insulin resistance. And I at least know this piece. I mean, you get a couple nights of bad sleep, or maybe it's even one night of bad sleep and you are totally glucose dysregulated. And that's yeah. why you're hungry the next day. And so then that starts to catapult the weight gain comes on. So can you speak to, well, let's break it down. You know, obviously the, the importance and then the detrimental effects that you see on people's physiology from not sleeping or not sleeping well? Uh, yes. So well said. So first off, we named the company Sleep as a Skill for a reason because for whoever's listening, sadly, this thing that we do third of our lives, 26 years on average is how long the average person is sleeping. And yet the average doctor is getting around two hours of training for as far as, you know, your GP around two hours of training in sleep, unfortunately. Um, so kind of a more systemic problem. I think many of them would like to uh, potentially learn more and be able to have more of these conversations, but sadly, just that's how we're at at the moment. So there's a lot of missing on the training of this. So our skill set of sleep is kind of weak in and of itself. So I appreciate you beginning at the beginning of, you know, why should we really focus on this? You know, why should we care? And a couple things, we really struggle to find a single area of life or domain of life that's not impacted when our sleep is really not working as well as we like it to and quantifiably so. 
So, you know, cognitive health, you mentioned the dementia concerns and some of the coping mechanisms that people might be utilizing. So whether it's over-the-counter sleep aids or prescription sleep aids or otherwise, we see very real measurable impacts from a neurological perspective. So we have recently in 2012, this concept of glymphatic drainage with a G was uncovered. So really not that long ago. And glymphatic drainage with a G, not an L is important because we see that that is part of that cleansing process of the brain, which does seem to have correlations to neurological difficulties like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, MS, and otherwise some of those deleterious effects. So that's from the brain health perspective. Now that's around, particularly in what appears to be largely in that deep sleep piece, that kind of first half of our night. So that relates back to that importance for sleep consistency and making sure that we're getting to sleep at around the same time, because we seem to lob off a bit more of that deep sleep if we're going to bed a little bit later. Now that's just for the cognitive piece. Now, emotional and mental health absolutely being impacted as, and then it gets further down the line for your physical health, your immunity. You certainly mentioned the hormonal kind of aspects and thyroid health, cardiovascular health. That's a big one. And we'll see for people, particularly with things like sleep apnea, that, you know, many people are running around undiagnosed there around one in four individuals is our current estimation of people with sleep apnea, but that's our kind of conservative estimation. It's there's hypothesis that there's a lot more people that are just undiagnosed. And by the way, for perspective of women versus men in this conversation, right on the first half of life, it appears that it's more two to one for the amount of men that are leaning towards that sleep apnea piece, which has a huge all-cause mortality rates go up, hormonal dysfunction, so many problems there. Once we start navigating through perimenopause into menopause and postmenopause, the numbers flip, and then we become what appears to be a one-to-one ratio for women having, even if they didn't have sleep apnea before, you might now have sleep apnea as you're navigating through those hormonal changes later in life. So that becomes really, really important. The, the many, many effects, it's a real killer, sadly, um, that sleep apnea and the breathing piece. Also, if we look into reproductive health, pain perception, so if someone with chronic pain issues, you know, those can be aggravated or impacted if you're not getting enough sleep. And then for the people that say, you know, often total sleep duration comes up into play when people are thinking of their sleep. And all right, so how many sleep, how many hours are you getting on average? Now, this is not the only aspect of sleep, but it's a big one. And I will say that there was a very large systemic review and a meta-analysis that came out in 2010 that did show that for people that were getting less than six hours of sleep a night, it was setting them up for much higher risk for diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cognitive decline, and all-cause mortality. So just the blanket, you know, all the things that uh, can go up as far as uh, ways to die, sadly, when you're getting less than six hours of sleep routinely. No, those are just some things that we find that are impacted. You spoke to something very important on the glucose piece and that leptin and ghrelin and how some things can really get messed with if our sleep is not functioning as well as we'd like, but that can even go into the environmental piece. You might've seen a big uh, or impactful study that came out recently where you're sleeping all those same, you know, quote unquote, solid number of hours. And yet, even if you're sleeping with a hundred lux of light on in your environment, 
They found measurable changes in glucose, kind of a higher resting glucose rate the following day, just because of that small, relatively small amount of light that's in the environment. So this is where it gets so nuanced. So these are some things that we can start with. Wait, I mean, before we move on, what is a hundred light? Like, what are we talking about light wise? Yeah. So a candle, candle light is around sub 10 lux. So, you know, a light amount of light, maybe move it up to around 10 candles amount, right? That's a kind of a loose kind of approximation, but you can measure this for yourself with there's different apps where you can download for free or a couple bucks. Lux is one light meter. And what you do is you point up that phone into the light in your environment and see how much Lux is in your environment. And you'll quickly discover that we've got two problems there. By day, we're about, there's certain ex- estimations. We just had a circadian lighting expert on the podcast out of NASA on, a, on just yesterday. And his estimations and some of the research that they're discovering is where most of us on average are in an environment by day that's three times too dim for what we need for really strong circadian pulse. It looks like, I think maybe you're outside, which is amazing if so, or like at least got some natural light going on. Yeah, a lot of light. Beautiful, love it. So it looks like you're trying to, you know, kind of promote getting as much light as possible. This becomes so crucial because we need that high amplitude light by day because most of us are getting three X too dim by day. The flip side appears to be the case in the evening where we're getting 3x too much light by night. And so this is where we actually often want to begin to improve our sleep results is to look at our light environment from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and during sleep, like that study pointed to of how much light we're being exposed to, because that is the number one Zeitgeber it's known as, or which is just German for time giver and how it's telling the body and our trillions of clocks in every cell and organ in our body, what time it is, what to be doing when, if you want to know where to begin for that perspective, for keeping us all on time, it's always the light dark cycle is the first most important one to start with. Okay. So even that little, and I'll, I'll just have to test it, but that damn fire thing in the corner that has that little tiny green light on it, that could yes. be enough to screw up my sleep. Yes. Yeah, so, so all those lights, so doing our due diligence to take the time. Now I know this can be definitely sort of annoying on the front end, but once you do it, you're really setting up your main primary environment. And granted, I know we travel and we do all these things, but you're where you mostly are, presumably that that is a place that is total darkness. And part of the, you know, one of the sayings is the hand test. And you're looking to put your hand up in front of your face when you're in your space. And if you can still see your hand, we want to keep working to get it totally dark. You should not be able to see your hand. It's kind of our goal, very cave-like. And believe me, like, I know these things can feel like a journey or a, you know, challenge to get this worked out certain weird environments. I see people send us pictures and videos of all their unique spaces that they have struggles and it doesn't necessarily have to be wildly expensive. It can get pricey to get, you know, the drapes and all the things, but I've also seen people really kind of patchwork things together. I've seen people take like 
you know, garbage bags with like, you know, the, the fall leaf ones that are totally opaque and thick and just taping things up, you know, it doesn't always have to look beautiful. And you certainly can do that, but I would like to put in for people that hopefully the budget doesn't become a deterrent and then, oh, I'll do it someday, maybe. And then it never gets done. Okay. So would you say in, in doing the sleep environment, we'll start there. What are the sure. most important things that people need to be doing for their, for their environments? So you mentioned the light, what about yeah. the temperature? And then let's kind of go into when they should be going to bed, because I've talked about that before on the podcast too, where everybody thinks like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just born a night owl. And that's just how I operate. It's like, no, you're a human being. Like we all have a circadian yeah. rhythm. So just because yeah. you think you're doing okay, going to bed at 1 a.m., mm, probably not a good idea. Absolutely. So really good points there. All right. A couple of things. You pointed to something great as far as the timeline. Everything that we're talking about for sleep, we want to put it under the umbrella of consistency. So we want to create as much of a consistent bedtime, wake time, and then exposure times to certain key indicators like the light, like the dark. Um, and that can get into even things like our meal timing, you know, some movement pieces, some of these other elements that we're doing all these things that around that consistent time. So you got this consistent window and I will say, I know there are special considerations, shift workers, you know, I mentioned my poker players, they're akin to shift workers. And so one of the things, if you are dealing with that kind of out of the norm scheduling, one of the things we do for them is design a consistent, as much of a consistent as possible lifestyle for them that incorporates those concerns or considerations. So for some people now, this might not be optimal and there are concerns, call-outs from the World Health Organization, National Toxicology, NIH, et cetera, that are, have confirmed cancer-causing or cancer-promoting effects that it appears to be from working and sh from shift work in general and electric light exposure at night. So do know that the further we kind of deviate from those, that light dark cycle, we do appear to have some very real and measurable impacts on overall health. But sometimes there is that consideration. So if you are working with that, then designing your own wake time, bedtime, that's as consistent as possible. Some people, it looks like 2 a.m., but they're consistently going to bed at 2 a.m., and they're consistently waking up at their, their particular wake up time. I say that just because fortunately we see people with that are shift workers that they'll do their schedule and then they try to go back to normal life schedule on the weekends. And then we're creating perpetual, you know, social jet lag, all that. Now for more, you know, kind of uh, the average individual that might be gravitating to some of those more standard bedtime wake times. Now, this is a couple of things that we want to look at from the environment. Not only do you want to create particularly that light, dark piece that we spoke to where it's as, you know, you can't see your hand. It's that dark while you're sleeping in the lead up to sleep. We'll often have people send us pictures or video of their environment that they're hanging out in and around the two hours before bed at the very least because we're looking to have them bathing in that darkness to promote sufficient melatonin production. Because most of us, even with those small little, you know, night light type night lights or the regular routine light bulbs, that is enough to deplete that melatonin production. So we do want to shift over to red lights, uh, candlelight, Himalayan salt lamps, fire, et cetera, in those 
hours leading up to so in your living room space. And if you are going to watch TV or what have you, that could be a time to bring in something like the blue blockers. They do have to be more amber or red to really make that difference, not the clear ones. So all of those things you're doing that beforehand, you mentioned the temperature, huge. That's kind of the number two Zeitgeber. And eventually all these things are likely to be automated from kind of smart homes in many places. And the forecasting appears to be the case in kind of building biology that all of this will just happen. So the lighting will start dimming, the temperature will change in your space. But in the meantime, we need to do this manually. So you can set up kind of almost those holiday timers where you can just plug them in like from Amazon or what have you for a couple of bucks and you plug in certain lights to go on at certain times. You can do that. You can lower your temperature. Some people have settings on Nest or what have you that in the evenings, it starts slowly dropping down because we're trying to mimic ancestral health of what would have happened in the past. So the sun would have set and it was kind of party over for thousands of years. And you kind of, then it would immediately very quickly get very much cooler, a marked cooling would happen. And then we would often be sleeping on the ground, which would have been one of the coolest places in the environment. So you would be, you know, really creating that cooling environment. We want to be doing that now. Even with things like cooling mattress toppers, you know, the eight sleep chili, if that's available for people in as far as financially as an investment, those can make market changes on their, on our wearables and our data for how improved their sleep is, but also the ambient environment, 60 to 67 degrees Fahrenheit is one of the call-outs from the sleep foundation of what we appear, what appears to bring about some of that deeper levels of sleep, uh, lowering heart rate, improving HRV heart rate variability. Um, in some studies, building up more brown fat just by lowering that temperature, which is more mitochondrial dense. And so a lot of benefits there. So those are some things that you can do in the evening from just even touching those two pieces, the darkness piece and the temperature component. Right. Okay. So at least we can start there. Now, going a little bit further into that, what about the things like an eye mask to black yeah. out? I've, I've heard, I've heard both. I've heard, no, nope, doesn't work because the light still can penetrate the little sides. And then I've heard, yeah. yes, you can use that as a way to at least start blacking out your sleep environment. Yeah, hundred percent. So to your point, lots of different use cases. So certainly for travel and things where you have a lot less uh, control or say in the environment often, you might find yourself in hotels or whatever. There's just kind of that un uh, unavoidable amount of light or problems uh, in the sleep environment. So that would certainly be an approach for people there. And of course, getting it fitted, ergonomics, uh, you know, as much blocking of the, that light as possible. But to your point, just throughout the course of the night, all those hours, all that movement that can often come about, it's very likely that we might still get some light in there. So it's the doing of the due diligence to set up our environment to be as dark as possible. So hopefully we really don't need it so much in our main primary environment is kind of our overarching goal so that we don't have that vulnerability of it coming off halfway through the night. And then even if you don't necessarily wake up, what we were pointing to on those concerns with some of those studies that are coming out of just the smallest amount of light seeming to impact the quality of our sleep and then downhill effects, those kind of lag indicators of things like changes in our glucose regulation and things that we might not expect. 
I once heard a study before we jump off of that. It, I, yeah. I heard a study a long time ago. I couldn't, I couldn't find it to this day, but it just stuck with me that they took twins. So they took two people, they were, you know, they were twins, put them yes. in a sleep environment, controlled everything, right? Controlled what they ate. Everything was identical except the one twin. They didn't even wake him up just to your point. They did not wake him up. They stimulated yeah. him enough to bring him out of REM sleep. Now, how they did that, I don't know. The little things on the brain, I don't know. And then yeah. it was something like within five days, he was a type two diabetic. I mean, just, and, and again, the person isn't even physically waking up and going, oh man, it's 2 a.m. I can't get back to sleep. They were just not in a deep enough sleep for rest and repair. And that was enough to completely screw up their glucose regulation. Oh, so thank you for calling that out. That just points to why we're saying that sleep is a skill because it can get so nuanced. A couple of quick things that you, that, um, come up for me there. One for the listener, if you suspect that something might be going on with your sleep, that's, you know, a little bit deeper than some of the things that we're discussing at the moment, do know that there's over a hundred different sleep disorders that could be lurking that many people might go undiagnosed for. And certainly the, at least bare minimum, the kind of respiratory disturbances, whether it's just plain old snoring whether it's upper airway resistance syndrome, kind of the in-between before full-blown sleep apnea, just kind of a different concern there, upper airway resistance syndrome, then sleep apnea can fall into different buckets that mild, moderate, severe. My husband, I often use an example because he has REM dependent sleep apnea and he is someone that's, you know, not overweight, not a large neck, doesn't snore, all these things. And only because of the mountains of sleep tests that I, you know, have him doing and all these things, then we uncovered that kind of distinct type of sleep apnea that he has. So just to your point around the REM piece, only largely when he's going into REM is when that flares up. We see lots of cases for people like that, particularly I was just at the sleep event at Stanford and part of the, they were kind of sounding the alarm for slender women 40 and over as this uh, overlooked group that seems to exhibit different types of symptoms than the very loud snoring or overweight or some of those things we might think of for sleep apnea. They might not have really a lot of those and yet might still be running around with some of those disturbances and then disrupting the sleep to your point, and then having a whole ripple effect of some of the fallouts. Now, other things that can come up are different types of pharmaceuticals. We do know that antidepressants, a lot of people in the sleep community are starting to speak of concerns with, uh, now, of course, lots of asterisks, anyone taking things, we're not saying obviously not to take the things you're taking, but to be aware and do a bit of an audit that some prescription and supplemental interventions can disrupt certain types of sleep. And a noted one is antidepressants impacting REM in particular. And over the short term, oddly having a bit of an antidepressant effect, but then over the long-term concerns of what this might be doing in both uh, full body effects as well from a mental and emotional regulation perspective. Okay. So you said a lot there we have to unpack. So first, yeah. <laughs> I, want try, I want to stay on my mental. I know path. there's so many things with sleep. Oh. There's so, I mean, oh my gosh. Right. Yes. Yeah. We, we might have to have a part two, but <laughs> okay. You mentioned the respiratory effect. So I don't want to forget to ask you this. I'm going to ask it now. What about mouth taping? So when we're looking at all that, we're, we're talking about all the different things that people can do 
to improve their sleep, their sleep environment, the mask, the dark, everything. What about mouth taping? What are your thoughts on that? Does that improve sleep? Yeah. Now this is a big topic. Um, I think it's an exciting topic because it's pointing to how many people, like I'm, I'm on planes a lot and I see this all the time. I'll walk back to the bathroom just as for anyone, uh, next time you're on a plane, just look around at how many people are mouth breathing while they're sleeping. It is just mm -hmm. an epidemic. So, and we know that just generalized mouth breathing, snoring, some of these things can be disruptive to that quality of sleep. If you are a big time snorer, big time mouth breather, if you know this for yourself or your partner, I would please implore people to just at least get tested for sleep apnea and see if that is at the root. And now you can get these tests for around $200 US dollars in the United States, at least sent right to your home, you know, can do it in a couple, get in a couple days, just sleep like you normally do, and then get some results for yourself. So it's much easier than it used to be to test for this. And I really would suggest that I would like to see a world where we're all being tested for this when we're younger and mid midlife, and then later in life at the bare minimum, because, you know, different things and uh, different elements in our life can change those results. So having said that with mouth tape though, we see a different kind of a mixed bag, an important asterisk that I think is we're trying to get the message out is if you do have undiagnosed respiratory issues at play, there can be times where the mouth tape can um, be disruptive there. So if, for instance, the sleep apnea and you uh, have airway issues or you have nasal valve collapse or different issues going on with your nasal breathing, there are just some nuances here that we don't want to, you know, for no pun intended, just band-aid on over, huh? Uh, that there are particular things we'd like to go in deeper just to make sure we're not aggravating, making things worse, because certainly with sleep apnea, we can see that this can actually be problematic. And then you're, you're trying to do this thing. It's going to help your sleep. And then sometimes that can make it worse. Now that's for some groups. And I don't want to take away from, there are certainly groups where it can be game changing and suddenly it's starting to improve because you actually can improve the skill of nasal breathing over time. And it can kind of change some of the anatomy of the nose and some of our penchant for nasal breathing. So you can really train for this and then have all those amazing benefits that we've probably heard of. If you haven't heard of this, you know, reading James Nestor, his book, uh, Breathe, if you want to look at more of the clinical piece, Jaws is a bit more uh, research dense. There's different ones, uh, not that James isn't, but this one's kind of a more academic leaning, I guess you'd say. There's lots of different emerging conversations of why we want to train for this. We just don't want to be too simplistic. And one of the things I see with a lot of clients is they begin to develop more relationships with say like their ENT, their dentist, who will have different approaches depending on their area of expertise, because we want to get clear on what's going on for you. Do you have airway issues? Do you have palate issues? Do you have uh, problems with your nasal breathing? Because there are things we can do. Yeah. What sold me is that mouth breathers facially age faster. I was like yeah. done all mouth tape. And so I just started and I was like, I love it. Yeah. I, I just fell in love with it. So when I don't That's have it, so I'm like, often. I'm at a loss. I know I'm mouth breathing at night. I don't feel like myself. So yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely something to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and also this can be worked in conjunction to to also get to some of the root cause of the why, to your point, like we really do see um, kind of facial changes. So hopefully we can get to this, get the word out and for kids to start 
we can um, kind of address this younger and we can really see changes in the face shape based on different interventions. So whether it's palate expansion, Vivos is a popular or becoming a popular option. There's more and more ways to expand the palate and then help to actually change that facial shape. Now, if you want to go down the rabbit hole on the airway piece, uh, things like tongue tie removal, lip ties, all of these things, especially uh, catching those for kids. But sadly, a lot of kids didn't get caught with that. So now they're adults with tongue ties. And that can, there's certain theories that that can be not only disruptive to how they're breathing, um, but then can cause facial kind of abnormalities that could further hole for mouth breathing, unfortunately. Right. And then it just starts to catapult. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So circadian rhythm, I want to go back to, I know you, you ruled out the shift workers and yes, there are some yeah. situations where people just can't change, but what about, you know, the people like us that yeah. we're just type a drivers and we think we just have to get one more thing done and answer 10 more emails and yes. it's okay to, to go to bed at midnight because I have stuff to do and I need to get it done. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So good. Thank you. And, you know, truly most of my clients that I'm working with often are entrepreneurs or remote workers or can design their days to some regard. If you are listening and you can design your days to some regard, this can often be both a blessing and a curse, depending on how we're managing things, because we can see that people that do have really consistent schedules from external, you know, considerations they uh, can often fall into a stronger circadian rhythm. So we wanna know that our circadian rhythm exists on a spectrum. So like any great spectrum, you can hang out on the weak side or the strong side. And just by virtue of our society, most of us are hanging out on the weak side, thanks to just general how we're living in modernity. So a couple of things to pull back on. One of the root causes that I see for why so many people have disrupted circadian rhythm and are on that weak side I like to reference a study that was done back in 2001 by the EPA, where they found that the average American, I know this is American centric, but you know, if you make the leap in logic that it's likely uh, extends outside of the United States, that the average American was spending around 93% of their time indoors and in automobiles. So largely an indoor environment, 93% of their days before a pandemic, before Netflix, before smartphones, before laptops. So it's probably much higher even now. And the reason that that is where I like to begin for solving this problem, for really entraining our circadian rhythm, is that what we're finding is that we're living as kind of these indoor zoo animals in a static lighting environment with the same lights by day into the night, largely static temperature environment so that it's, you know, hangs out around 72 or whatever it is for the average person. And so we're not having all those cues that used to just guide our behaviors previously. So what do we do if we're living indoors? And that is the case. Well, we can look to some famous studies that I often like to reference. Kenneth Wright ran these really famous studies where he took night owls, what you were speaking to, going to bed around you know, midnight, what have you. He took people that were kind of identified as late leaning night owls, took them camping. And so it was this beautiful kind of elegant study where, and he did it two times, one for a week, one for a, kind of a long weekend, both times measuring you know, melatonin levels and cortisol and seeing that in a very short period of time. Now they're not having any indoor faux light. They're not having the um, kind of static temperature and all those things. 
just by being outdoors in that environment, within a few days, they started syncing up with the rhythms of nature. Suddenly the night owls were aligned with these rhythms. So we look to that one because it does start to poke holes in those identities. Like for the me type person that was saying, I'm a night owl. That's how it is. I'm get my best work done then. Yada, yada. I'd be so righteous about it. Turns out that our environment is doing much more to those results and more people, the different types of people are more light sensitive than others. And that's another important point. We do see this for mental health issues. So we see things like bipolar. So people with bipolar being particularly sensitive to some of these cues and that can get more nuanced. But so what do we do about this? And not everyone's going to start camping for the rest of their lives or moving out into the wilderness. So how can we bring these things into our modern day? Now, the first place again, the most simple thing, because I know I'm sharing all these you know, perspectives, but from the practical takeaway, one of the more important things that people can begin is with a consistent wake up time. And the reason for that seven days a week, you can swing it kind of plus or minus 30 minutes on either side is part of the recommendation. And this usually is not the most fun for a few weeks for the average person, takes some time to adjust to that. We might have coping mechanisms where on the weekends we sleep more or what have you. But when we start to flatline that wake up time where we do have control or say over, whereas you can't always force someone certainly to go to sleep, that often is problematic, but we can have a say in the wake up time. So you begin there. And then over time, the bedtime typically can follow suit, especially if you're doing all these other things to help support it with the temperature and the light and all these things. Then beginning there and marrying that new anchor for yourself with what's known as sunlight anchoring. This was coined by a researcher out of Stanford, Dan Party. And sunlight anchoring, you want to physically get outdoors and get that bright light exposure in your eyes not from behind a window. Certain studies show that it takes anywhere from 50 to 100 times longer to reset your master clock from behind a window. Better, it's if you have a lot of windows or if you're in a hospital environment, we know that that can still help, but to really, really entrain this and make it easier to fall asleep thereafter, we wanna get that bright light exposure as closely coupled to that wake up time as possible. You can also think of about a kind of almost invisible countdown clock that's now from the moment you get that bright light exposure around 16 hours later is when you're likely somewhere in that range to get sleepy after that bright light exposure. So what happens for many of us is we're not getting bright light exposure for hours later. And then that is delaying the time by which you're going to get sleepy. And that's what many of us are dealing with are these delayed sleep onset times where we all say, oh, you know, whatever, I can just watch Stephen Colbert later or whatever the heck, you know, and we think right. that that is now normal and we've been swimming in that. Um, and that's part of our, our, our struggle now. So we want to ultimately get to bed by what? I always say between 10 and two is your rest and repair. Is that correct? Would you ultimately want people to go to bed at 10 or kind of expanding on what you just said about the light exposure? I mean, in the winter, yeah, I mean, I love it now. I can look at the light at 6 a.m., but in the winter, it might not get light till 7 or 7.30 and I've already been up for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, really good points because there certainly are those elements where people need to get up before the sunrise and what have you. So 
there's kind of the optimal spectrum and then the compliance spectrum. So certainly there's the optimal, a lot from an optimal circadian perspective, we would like to align most of our schedules as much as possible with these rhythms of nature. So if people do have that available to them, kind of drifting in alignment with the seasons and aligning their bedtime and wake time to shift a bit to support those different seasons would be part of our recommendation. Now, if we can't always do that, understandable, then what we can do is comply by making this as kind of workable in your lifestyle as possible, because as routine as things can be, seems to be one of the most important things. So we want it to be as consistent because what happens from a sleep perspective, two important hormones that we're often talking about is cortisol pulse in the morning, melatonin pulse by the evening. And what the, what can happen is when we have even just one or two of those days every week that many people do do when they're waking up much later and going to bed much later, later, that can change around that cortisol pulse, the strength, the timing, and then have a delayed cortisol pulse, which we know is really characteristic of a lot of sleep disorders. That delayed cortisol pulse seems to happen often too for people struggling with anxiety and other things, and then can throw off their melatonin pulse and make that later. So what the answer would really be is to sit and look at some of the considerations that you have for your own self in your life. And we have people sitting with something we call our circadian crafted day. So with their circadian crafted day, they're designing what would be the optimal time that they can wake up about seven days a week that they can really commit and make a lifestyle that's designed around that. They can feel like they designed it and not at the effect of, or because some other reason that's actually their craft and that they're doing that routinely. Now, of course, we would like to have that be as close to these rhythms of nature as possible, but we want it to be consistent. Okay. That's perfect. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now you had mentioned melatonin and I know we only have a couple of minutes. I want to be respectful of your time, but I can't let you go until yeah. we talk about this. So now I'm going to bring it full circle. What has saved me, what has gotten me off of Xanax, yay, uh, is, and, and you're going to give me your opinion on this. Yeah. I now do the Delta 8 gummies, which, okay. okay, you know, like asterisk. Yes, it is a derivative THC. If you are getting drug tested, you can't do it. And that might be illegal in your state, blah, blah, blah. The Delta yeah. 8 gummies. And I do um, progesterone. And, yeah. I, and then I stack, I use the... I'll, I'll use one or two different products, but basically the blend is melatonin, like five megs of melatonin, a little bit of, I want to say B6. I think that there's like a little bit of valerian root. It's some kind of blend. And when yeah. I put that together, I get tired and I go to bed and I sleep well and I wake up rested and I feel great and I don't have to take a Xanax. How's yeah. that? Okay. Well, a hundred percent. And I've heard so much of this so often. So Again, going back to that optimal perspective, it's kind of all these things exist from, you know, where we where we can play at for this optimal quote unquote. And then there's some of the considerations of the practicality and what would be the lesser of, you know, two choices. 110% when we're talking benzos, and of course I always want to be responsible. There's lots of considerations for how people are getting off of benzos, working with a professional using something like um, Ashton Manual is a popular one. 
for people getting off of benzos so that it's really often referred or recommended to go low and slow when you're getting off of those things and, and really have a solid plan. So then on the other side of it, to your point, you found a concoction that works for you. Amazing. This can be so, so important. What, what could be available for the listener and in this conversation is a couple of things. One, if they're tracking with the O-ring, Whoop Band, BioStrap, any of these things, then this can be an awesome way to play with these different ingredients and then see what are some of the things that we might want to keep? What are some of the things we might test what happens when we lessen the, that dose or change around some of that, you know, uh, that cocktail that we're having. So a couple of things I'd put in with there. One of the top ones that I would then want to play with would be the THC component, the Delta 8 piece, because one of the things that we do see for people, and it can be this great in-between, I've seen this often for people of getting off of certain prescription drugs or drugs that aren't working, and then THC, CBD, often, and sometimes a ratio of the two, being so life-changing. I mean, there's forums, there's people talking about, it gave me my life back. So that can be amazing. And also for pain management and other things. Now, over time, once we start to build back up that sleep confidence, because that's one of the things that often is missing when we're on some of those other pharmaceuticals that can so play with then bringing about uh, insomnia rebound, this like dreaded thing that comes about when we often get off of things like Xanax or Ambien, and then any insomnia you're dealing with before, it's back and often worse than it was before. So one, and that's in the process of kind of tapering. Now, what we can do once we get past all that, now we're building that sleep confidence, then there can be room to play with, could we lower some of the THC component and actually see if that better sleep could get even richer. Particularly THC, sometimes what we'll see for that is improved sleep onset, similar to like alcohol, the ability it helps us fall asleep better, very clear often in many studies. But then where it starts to get a little funky is particularly later into the night, some sleep fragmentation that sometimes people will remember or not remember, or can affect our ability to kind of shift over into different sleep staging that we might want to be cultivating. And it does depend on the dosage and the person and a number of things, but that would be one that I would look at first and then playing with that and then seeing, what do we see? Do we see improved heart rate, HRV, body temperature, respiratory rate, blood oxygen, other things, sleep fragmentation, et cetera, on those measurable objective uh, readouts? So I'd start with that one. On the melatonin piece, there's two very developed camps. One camp being pro-melatonin supplementation. Oh my gosh, it can help with immunity. It's a you know, natural antioxidant, has so many benefits. We saw it really amp up during COVID and a lot of benefits there. And even to the point of high dose melatonin, there are studies around cancer and otherwise that it can be beneficial in those cases. Then there's the case of the people that say, we should be supplementing with melatonin. It's a hormone because it's an impact our ability to produce our own. And then kind of the somewhere in between where there's a time and a place, jet lag seems to be pretty established that that can be helpful. And then circadian rhythm disruption, a time where melatonin could be helpful to bring us back. What I would say is first addressing that THC piece, then playing with a lot of those behavioral interventions that we're speaking to, that sometimes it can be underestimated how powerful those can be on our own development of melatonin and measurably so. And so we can bring in the Dutch test and other things to actually show that we are improving our own dynamic response to developing melatonin. 
And so out of that sea, do we now need it in the same way that we needed it before? And so that could be a, a rolling kind of answer there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. I, I can't believe we're out of time. I mean, I know <laughs> we're going to have to have you back. Cause I have like 10 more questions in my head. So we'll just do a part two. So Molly, in the meantime, because I know so many people are resonating and we talked about all the detrimental effects that can have on your health. And this is a huge topic that I need all of my patients to listen to listen up because if you don't get this piece under control, nothing else in your health is going to happen. I don't care how many supplements and interventions and hormones and everything that we throw at you, you're not going to experience optimal health unless you get this sleep piece down pat. So Molly, tell people how they can find you, how they can work with you. What do you offer? Go. Uh, Well, thank you so much for saying that and for being a stand for people to get the sleep that they need. It is so true what, how you just phrased it. It is so crucial. So thank you for that. And, um, yeah, if people are looking to hopefully out of this conversation, our aim is to hopefully pique some interest in this thing that we do a third of our lives. So lots of different ways that you could get some additional information. So one at sleepisaskill.com, we have a free sleep assessment. So you can take a sleep assessment based on what's going on for you with your sleep, get some tailored information back specifically for you to help support and putting some of these things to practice now. And then in the process of doing that, you can also, that will give you our free downloadable PDF, the optimized bedroom. So, you know, high tech, low tech things that you can do to improve that space, kind of some of the things we're discussing and then going deeper. And then it will also give you the opportunity to sign up for our weekly newsletter. So that is, goes out called sleep obsessions has been going out every Monday for five years, really have a lot of fun with that. Cause we've got people on there that have been on there for years and they can send in some of what's going on with their sleep. And we'll often kind of include that in upcoming newsletters. We have the weekly podcast episodes with different experts in the area of sleep and circadian health. So that can give you lots of free information to support wherever you are with your sleep. And then lastly, if you are really struggling or just want more support or be in a community of people that are taking this area, really, you know, uh, prioritizing this area, then we have online cohorts as well as self-paced programs. And then we have one-on-one offerings. All of those require, except for the self-paced programs uh, or a ring to participate so that you really come in at a measurable level with your sleep and health, health metrics as evidence on the or ring, and then leave with a whole different slew of results with trends going in the direction that we want to support, which can be really empowering for people to know that they can get back in the driver's seat of their sleep results. Awesome. And we'll have all of that in the show notes. I know you need to run. I love this. Thank you so much, so much for your knowledge and your wisdom and your help on this. So we will definitely talk again. Thank you. And I hope to have you on our podcast. I think we might be setting that up because your information is so valuable for our people that are struggling with their sleep. So thank you for all the work you do. Absolutely. We'll talk to you, Molly. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.